Good morning. It's good to be with you guys. Uh, if this is your first time here, my name is Garrison. We're really, really glad that you are here. Uh, I am the, the pastor here at Veritas. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, moms, we are so, so incredibly thankful for you. Um, we know that so much of what you do sometimes goes unnoticed uh, and remains uh, to be uh, thanked. Thanked? Is that the right word? Thanked? You're not thanked too often, uh, or often enough, I should say. Uh, so thank you so much. We're, we're so uh, thankful for you and, and glad um, that we get a day to celebrate you and, uh, and uh, to give you thanks for all that you do. Um, let's get into the word. We're in Galatians 3, and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 6 of Galatians 3, continuing in our series and Paul's letter to the Galatians. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a Bible at the edge of each bench, a little white paperback Bible, and you can turn to page 566. If you don't have a Bible, take that one home. That's our gift to you. We'd love for you to take that home and make it your own. Uh, really quick, uh, we, we have something attached to the bulletins that you received when we walked in. It's called a Connect card, uh, and that has just a bunch of information in it. One of the things that you can look uh, to that for is sermon notes. You can take notes in there. You can kind of see the outline of the text and, and uh, all of those sorts of things. So open that up. Take a look. Also on there is a Connect card. It's attached to the bulletin. Uh, it's a little perforated edge. Uh, please take a moment, fill that out. If this is your first time here. Um, take it out, or even if it's not, take it out, fill it out, uh, and turn it into a leader or in the bucket over here in the black box on the connect table. Uh, and we'd love to get connected with you. Uh, and, and whether it's your first time here or not, we'd love for you to just jot a few things down in the prayer request section, things we could be praying for you uh, about this week. We'd love to be able to pray for you. So make a Make it a priority to fill that out. All right, let's, uh, let's turn in our Bibles to Galatians 3. And if you want to stand with me for the reading of God's holy word, Galatians 3, 1 through 6, is what Paul writes to the churches of Galatia. Must listen with reverence and joy, for these are the words of our God. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the forgiveness of sins and the justification of of sinful people like us that we receive in Jesus. And we ask now as we open your word and apply your word to our lives that you would help us um, to have a feeling sense of that forgiveness and that justification. Would you help us to, to, to feel the forgiveness that is objective and outside of us and, and something that you give, that you declare over us. But would you help us to, to have a feeling sense of it now as we open your word? Lord, thank you for the mothers uh, 
here today. Thank you for the mothers in our church. Um, Lord, what a, what a gift mothers are. Thank you for um, what you reveal about yourself through mothers, the nurturing and the care and the affection um, that they embody for their young ones. And uh, Lord, we, we ask that you would bless them, that you would keep them, that you would make your face shine upon them and give them peace. Lord, for those who are, are struggling um, because either they, they want to be mothers and they can't or, or there are just some sort of issues going on there, Lord, would, would you uh, bless them and give them peace? Would you soothe their soul with the peace of the Holy Spirit here this morning? Lord, we need you. We can do nothing apart from you, so be at work in and through the, the proclaimed word here this morning. Sanctify us in your truth, Lord. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our Lord, our rock, our redeemer, in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. So um, a major focus of Paul's letter to the Galatians um, is, is what's called justification by faith alone justification by faith alone. And we've talked about this some, and we're going to continue to dive deeply into this wonderful doctrine in the coming weeks. Uh, but I, I wanted to start off this morning with just kind of putting up a definition to, to get us all on the same page when we read or say the word justification. Uh, when, when I say that you are justified, this is what is meant. This is a very concise way to put it. What is meant is that you are accounted righteous before God, by God's grace alone, through your faith alone, and in and because Christ alone. You are accounted righteous before God, by God's grace alone, through your faith alone, and because in and because Christ alone. I love the way that John Bunyan describes his feeling sense of his justification in Christ in his autobiography. If you don't know who John Bunyan was, he was a, a Puritan, a reformer in the 1600s. He was a tinker turned preacher, and uh, he, he, he suffered much in his life on account of the gospel that he preached. And he's well known for his book, Pilgrim's Progress. You've probably heard of that. And also his autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of sinners. And his autobiography is fascinating. Uh, one of the things you notice as you read is that this is a man constantly struggling uh, with feeling guilty in his conscience, constantly feeling the weight of guilt on his conscience and being terrified because of God's punishment because of this guilt. But subsequently, his being soothed and put to rest and at peace because of the person work of Jesus. He's constantly going back and forth between these two extremes. And on one of those occasions, he talks about his experience so vividly. Listen to what he says. I love this. He says, one day as I was walking through the field and dealing with some dashes on my conscience, fearing lest all was still not right. Suddenly the sentence fell upon my soul. Your righteousness is in heaven. And I thought as well that I saw with the eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, is my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, he lacks my righteousness. For my righteousness is right in front of him. 
I also saw that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor my bad frame of heart that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. Now I went home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. Here I lived for some time very sweetly at peace with God through Christ. Oh, I thought, Christ, Christ, there was nothing but Christ before my eyes. Now listen, this is where the Christian life is lived. He said, Christ, Christ, there was nothing but Christ before my eyes. This is where the Christian life is lived. It's with Christ, right in front of Christ, right in front of the cross. The Galatians had forgotten this. They started in this way, but now they had bought into the message of the Judaizers, which told them that the Christian life, yes, it starts with Jesus, but then it continues and is made perfect with Moses. They, they, they thought that Calvary was the starting point, but you must go to Sinai to get the fullness. That initially justification is through faith alone and Christ alone, but in order to continue in that good and righteous standing before God, you had to do extra. And what Paul is doing here is he's trying to shake the Galatians awake from their spiritual stupor. He's, he's insulting them. He's reminding them. He's asking rhetorical questions of them in order to call them back to Christ, all to show them that the Christian life never moves on from Jesus Christ. It's Christ and all Christ and nothing but Christ. The Christian life is Jesus Christ alone and you don't move on from him. You don't move on from your justification in him. You don't move on from needing to be covered in his righteousness. You don't move on from needing his sufficient death on the cross. You don't move on from needing the free and full and eternal salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But the Galatians had forgotten this. They had sought to move on from Christ. They thought there was something deeper, something higher that they needed, but there's nothing deeper, nothing higher than Christ and him crucified. And we struggle with the same thing to this day. The the simplicity and the sufficiency of the gospel has never been without its detractors in the world and, and even in the church, and it's never been without detractors in our very own hearts. We're so easily deceived that there's got to be something else. That there's got to be a next level, a varsity level of Christianity. That there's got to be something to add to Christ, but there's not. The Christian life is lived at the foot of the cross in the shadow of the cross. The Christian life is Christ. And that's what Paul is reminding the Galatians of here and what I want us to be reminded of this morning. So we'll walk through three points this morning to see how Paul argues that this is the case. Number one is a bewitched congregation. Number two, a billboarded Christ. And number three, a bunch of questions. A bewitched congregation, a billboarded Christ, and a bunch of questions. Let's get to it. A bewitched congregation. 
So to remind you, Paul spent the last two chapters uh, defending the gospel by talking about the, the origins of his gospel, how he came to know it and how he came to preach it himself. And he said that he was, direct, he was given the gospel directly from Jesus Christ himself. He didn't receive it from anyone. Jesus gave him this gospel. Therefore, he has the authority as an apostle to say, this is what the true definition of the gospel is. And now as we turn to chapters three and four, we see Paul moving from talking about the origins of his gospel to now talking about the content of his gospel. And the verses we're looking at this morning are a kind of transition point. He's pivoting here to discuss the content of the gospel in the following chapters. And to transition, he readdresses the Galatians and readdresses the problem that's taking place amongst the churches in Galatia. He reminds them of their initial experience into the Christian life, their, their entrance into the Christian life. And he reminds them how God had been at work among them and in them. And the instrument through which God was at work in and among them was not works of the law, but through faith. Faith from the beginning and faith is how they will continue. And so he readdresses them. He addresses them in the beginning in his introduction, but he's readdressing them now. He says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Or one commentator who paraphrased this verse put it this way. He said, oh, you precious little idiots. Then uh, this, this word foolish here is, is actually the, the, the word from which we get the English word moron. Uh, so he's saying, you morons, you stupid idiots. What? Uh, I better be careful. Uh, it's, it's worth noting, though, uh, that, that Paul is not insulting their intelligence. He's not saying that they have low IQs. He's, not, he's saying that they've been foolish. He's saying that they've been foolish. They've been taken. They've been so easily deceived. They've shut their eyes and put their hands on their ears, and they've fallen for this awful and false doctrine that's been propagated among them. And he actually goes as far to say that they've been bewitched. They've been bewitched, which could seem to us to be such a peculiar word um, to use here. It's, it's a word that means like they've had this spell cast over them. It's like they, they've gone under a trance, like they've been subjected to witchcraft or something. And Paul says this because he's, he's so perplexed. He's saying there's got to be some explanation for this. Are, are you under a spell? Why on earth would you fall away from God's gospel of free salvation in Christ through faith alone? Why on earth would you turn toward this false gospel of grace plus law, faith plus works, Christ plus Moses, Calvary plus Sinai? Why on earth would you turn from the gospel of perfect freedom to this legal bondage? Someone must have cast a spell on you. And some have said that Paul is overreacting here and showing a a lack of constraint and a lack of self-control. And as we saw several weeks ago, Paul does use some rather forceful language here in his letter, but, but he's doing this out of love for the Galatians and out of zeal and love for Christ. He's being a true friend to the Galatians. They're in danger, as Galatians 2.21 says, of nullifying the grace of God with their law-based Christianity. They're, they're in danger of undermining the cross of Christ, which of course would make Paul's outburst understandable. As Calvin said about this text, when we hear that the Son of God with all of his blessings is rejected and that his death is esteemed as nothing, what godly mind will not break into indignation? 
He's, he's upset, and rightfully so, because they're denying the sufficiency of Christ. Law-keeping as the basis of Christianity is like looking at the crucified and risen Christ straight in the face and saying, you are not enough. You lack in what I need. You are not sufficient. You lack. Which, of course, is like going to, to Paris, going to the museum in which... The Mona Lisa is housed. I wanted to say the museum, but I, I don't know how to pronounce the name of it. <laughs> uh, going to the museum in which the Mona Lisa is housed, standing in line to see the Mona Lisa and saying, Da Vinci didn't do it right. You come to, face to face with this glorious, beautiful painting saying, he didn't do it right. I need to add some things to it. And, and then you throw your excrement at the painting. That's, that's what we're doing when we look at the cross and we say, this is not enough. I need to do more. I need to add my works in order to be accepted. I need to add my works in order to be accepted by God in Christ. You, you have nothing to add to him. You have nothing to add to him. He is complete. He is complete. He is sufficient. He is not lacking in anything at all. He is not lacking in goodness and righteousness. He is not lacking in the Father's affection and love for him. He is not lacking in anything. And apart from him, we are lacking in everything. We, we, we need those things from him. We need his riches to cover our poverty. We need his, his purity to cover our stain. We need his robe of righteousness to cover our filthy menstrual rags that we call righteousness. And he gives us all of those things and more when we trust in him. But we forget and we forget. We run to Moses. We run to law. We run to our own work and what we can do. But if our forgiveness and justification can be accomplished through our works of the law, then there was absolutely no point of the cross. Why would the infinitely precious Son of God have to die for our sins if we could take care of them ourselves? As Galatians 2.21 tells us, the logical implication of justification through works of the law is that Christ died for no purpose. And if Christ and his death is not kept before our eyes, that's where we go. That's where we go. We begin to look inwardly for our salvation and justification. We begin to look within ourselves for those things, uh, our works to make us right before God. That The Galatians didn't keep Christ before their eyes. They didn't regularly behold Christ now, when they gathered as a church. Maybe their pastors weren't preaching him. They didn't behold Christ faithfully, which is why this next session, Paul reminds them about the billboarded Christ, the billboarded Christ. He writes to them and he says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. You're being foolish. Has someone bewitched you? Remember when Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified before your very eyes. I love the way he, he puts this here. The word for publicly portrayed here is, is a word often used to describe like an advertisement, like a billboard. 
It's a word used to describe like when public notices, public pronouncements were being posted in in a city or a village. He's saying that Jesus Christ was plastered up on a billboard. He was billboarded in front of the faces of the Galatians. They saw him publicly portrayed as crucified. But now what Paul is not saying, he's not saying that he like hired an advertising agency to put up a billboard with a picture of Jesus on it. He's, he's not saying that he drew a picture of the crucifixion or that they had some nice stained glass or a drama team. He's not saying that he used like a flannel graph presentation to put Jesus before their eyes. That would only make sense if you're Baptist. Um, but rather, Paul is saying, remember when I came to you and I preached Christ and him crucified so plainly, so clearly. Remember when, when Christ revealed himself to you and you saw him with the eyes of your soul through the public preaching of my gospel. Do you remember that? He's saying, I told you about his suffering and his bloodshed and his cross that he was nailed to. I told you about the asphyxiation, about his death for our sins and resurrection. Do you remember this? I preached him so plainly that you saw him with the eyes of your very soul. They saw Jesus publicly portrayed as crucified and they were transformed, they were saved, they were justified simply by hearing with faith. They they didn't see the historic event of the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. But when Paul preached it, it's like they were there. It's like they were there. It's as if they could reach out their hands and touch the crossbeam. It's as if they could see with their very own eyes the blood flowing down the crossbeam. It's as if they could hear him gasping for air and they saw it. And this is exactly what takes place when the gospel is preached, when we gather here on Sunday mornings. If we have eyes to see If we have faith to hear, then we are beholding Jesus Christ right now being publicly portrayed as crucified. This is what happens when the church gathers and the word is preached, the gospel is preached. This is what's happening when we read the scriptures together and sing about Jesus. This is what happens when I or someone else gets up here and opens the scriptures and applies them to our lives. This is what happens when we partake of the bread and the cup at the Lord's Supper. This is what happens when we gather, we see Jesus Christ being publicly portrayed as crucified. We behold him with the eyes of faith. He's wearing the masks of the word. He's wearing the masks of bread and the cup. But we're seeing him. He's revealing himself to us. We're hearing from him and he's assuring us of our salvation in him. And so even now, I would implore you, look at him. Look at Jesus Christ. Look at him suspended on this wooden crossbeam. Look at him bearing the weight of your guilt and your shame and your fear, the, the, the weight of the wrath of the Father coming down on him. Look at him bleeding and suffering and gasping for air and know that it is finished. It is finished. He is sufficient for you. His death is sufficient because of him. You are forgiven because of that, because of the crucifixion. You are freely and fully and eternally accepted by the God of the universe. Because of this, you're justified. Look at him and tell me that there's something else that you need. 
don't need anything. So there's nothing. There's nothing else that you need. You don't move on from that. You don't move on from Jesus and him crucified and him raised. You don't move on from him. You don't grow out of just sitting here. He's, he's not the appetizer of the Christian life. He's the whole meal. He's not the A and the B and the C of the Christian life. He is the entire alphabet. It's Jesus Christ alone and nothing else. He is sufficient for you. And this message is for you. It's, it's the, the gospel, it's, it's not just for non-Christians. It is, it is for non-Christians. Yes, it's for non-Christians. If, if you're a non-Christian here this morning, know that the gospel is for you. That This message is for you. You can be forgiven. You can be justified. You can be freely and fully accepted by the God of the universe if you only believe. But hear me, this is what Paul is driving into the minds of the Galatians. This message, the gospel, is also for Christians. We need this just as much now as when we first believed. We need this just as much now. Correct me if I'm wrong, but we are still sinners. We still mess up. We we need to be reminded of this over and over and over again. We need to be reminded that we are forgiven, that we are justified, that Christ is still enough, and that your sin is still there in the grave The Galatians had forgotten this and we forget this, but we're still messed up. And the law is still not enough to make us clean and whole and justified. And the crucified and risen Jesus is still enough to do all of that and more. You don't move on from this. Which is why every single week we gather to behold him. Every single week we open up this book and we preach Christ. Every single week we receive the Lord's Supper together because truly as the church, like we have, I have nothing else to give you. I have nothing else to offer you. I I have nothing else. We we have Christ. We have him crucified and raised. We have the forgiveness of sins. If if you want five tips for your best life now or eight ways to, to flourish at work or something along those lines, you can get that anywhere. We have the gospel and that's it. If you want pleasant relationships that don't cost you anything, or if you want to to feel good about your stuff, you can get that stuff anywhere. We have nothing else but the gospel. We have nothing else but Jesus. If you're a sinner and you need forgiveness from the one true God, we can talk to that. If you've messed up royally, We can talk to that. If you need a righteousness, not your own, we have a Christ who is more than sufficient for your need. We have a Christ who is more than sufficient. If you're exhausted and you're not sure if you can keep on going, if you're broken and you're continually struggling with the same sins, the same addiction, the same lust, the same lack of contentment, the same anything, and you're just broken and discouraged, we have a Christ who is more than sufficient for your need. If you're poor in spirit, He is rich and wealthy and will cover you. Look to Christ. He's more than enough. What else could we possibly need than Christ? It would be totally senseless to try to add anything to him. It's foolishness to try to get God to accept us based on our own merits and works of the law. The only way to be fully and freely and eternally accepted 
by God is through faith in Jesus Christ and through faith in him alone. This brings us to our last point. That's the the subject of a bunch of questions that Paul asks. The Galatians knew that that this was all true. They knew that a person is only justified through faith in Christ and not by works of the law. It says so in the Old Testament scriptures, as we'll see in the weeks to come. But in our text this morning, he reminds them uh, of their very own experience of this. They, They knew that this was true because they had experienced this firsthand. And and they had done nothing whatsoever to be accepted in the first place, but they were accepted. They had done nothing whatsoever to earn their justified status. They had done nothing at all to receive the Spirit. They just heard the message and believed, and they were justified. And so Paul seeks to remind them of this by asking them a, a bunch of rhetorical questions. Listen to the five questions Paul asks here. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Five questions, but they can all be summarized by basically repeating what the first and the last questions say. Does one receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Does one receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? That seems to be the sum of all of his questions. They all boil down to that one, basically. When Paul preached the gospel and Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified to the Galatians, did they do anything to earn or deserve the gift of the Spirit, or did he fall on them simply through them hearing the gospel of faith? Of course, when Paul speaks about the Spirit here, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. God is one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God. There is one God. And each person plays a specific role in the work of redemption. The Father plans our redemption and sends the Son. The Son uh, comes and is incarnate and accomplishes our redemption through His life and His death and His resurrection. And then the Father and the Son, they send the Spirit to come and fill us and apply the work of Christ's redemption to our hearts. He applies the work of redemption to us, the work of Christ to us. He unites us with Christ so that all that Christ is and all that Christ has is ours. And the Galatians had seen the Spirit work in such power in their life as a church. They had received him. They had received his gifts. He had done supernatural things among them, worked miracles among them, like healing or prophecy. And they had seen the fruit of the Spirit in their lives, like love and joy and peace. And, and, and they could not have forgotten about the work of the Spirit in their midst because it had been so palpable, so demonstrative. And so Paul asks them, how did the Spirit do works like this through you? Was it through hearing with faith or was it by your doing works of the law? How did the Spirit work like this among you? And there are only two possible answers here. It could only have been done through faith or through works of the law There are only two options, and Paul seems to think that if they can get this figured out, if they can answer this question, 
then the whole debacle with the Judaizers and the false gospel would be resolved. And the answer here is really a no-brainer. They didn't do anything to receive the Spirit. They heard the plain, clear gospel. They believed what they heard. And because of this, they were justified. Because of this, the Spirit entered into their hearts. Because of this, they were included in the new covenant people of God. This is how we all began in the Christian life. And it's how we continue in the Christian life. This answers the question that so often comes up whenever we're sharing the gospel with someone or some, the question that arises in our hearts continually. It's the same question we see in Acts 2 after Peter preaches the gospel. He said, what brothers shall we do? What should we do? And the answer is shut up and listen. Believe it. The answer is shut up and listen. Believe it. And we go, okay, I got that part down. What do I do now? Shut up and listen and believe it. Okay, we got that part. Then what's next? Shut up and listen and believe it. And on and on we go. The Christian life is one of hearing and believing over and over and over again. Martin Luther used to say that the Christian organ is the ear. The Christian organ is the ear because the Christian faith is, before it's anything else, it's good news. That's what gospel means. The the gospel is good news. News And it's through hearing it that we come to faith. And it's through faith that we are saved and justified. This is why the church throughout the ages has gotten together every single week to do this. This weird thing where someone gets up and applies the Bible to our lives. This this is an odd thing. But this is what we've done throughout the ages every single week because... It's through hearing that we come to believe, through hearing that Christ has died, Christ is risen, you are forgiven. We can't hear that enough. And we need to continue in the Christian faith in the same way because I don't think there's any person in this room that feels too forgiven. I don't think there's any person in this room who has their conscience soothed to the point where they feel too forgiven. There's no one in this room that can say that's the case. And if we don't hear it over and over and over again, we'll resort to what the Galatians had resorted to. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Rather than continuing in the same way that we started, through hearing with faith. Hearing with faith. Now it's important as we close to just note what faith is and what faith isn't. So that we know what this text is saying and what we're being called to here. We see here in the text that that hearing the gospel of faith is contrasted with doing works of the law. Hearing the gospel of faith is contrasted to doing works of the law. So hearing is contrasted with doing, and faith is contrasted with works. The gospel is contrasted with the law. So faith is not a work that makes us righteous. Rather, faith is the instrument, the channel through which we receive the righteousness of Jesus who did the works for us. Okay, so faith is a receptive thing. Faith depends on Christ. Faith doesn't do, it depends. It depends on Christ. And it's not merely, faith is not merely being able to regurgitate Christian truths. It's not being able to, it's not just knowing the the basic claims of the Christian faith. And that's a part of it, but, and neither is it uh, 
mental assent, intellectual assent, just agreeing with the truths of the Christian faith, although that is also essential. But it's, it's more than that. You, you need to know the basic claims of the Christian faith and you need to believe them to be true, that you need to agree that they are true. But faith still goes deeper than that. Faith, and the way that we're using the word here, is personal trust in the Lord Jesus. And some of you might have heard uh, of Charles Blondin. I heard about him for the first time this week. He was a famous tightrope walker in the mid to late 1800s. And he, came, he became particularly well-known in 1860 when he uh, walked this tightrope that stretched over 11,000 feet. It stretched over 11,000 feet. And he did this over the Niagara Falls. So he walked over 11,000 feet above the Niagara Falls. And thousands and thousands of people came out to see him, people from Canada and people from the U.S. And they all came to see him walk this, this tightrope. And he, he did it once. He just simply walked across and everyone was super impressed and clapping and cheering and ooing and aahing. But then he started doing crazy things. Like he started, he, he rode a bike across the tightrope. And then he like carried a stove and made eggs while he was walking across the tightrope, just doing crazy things. And then he walked a wheelbarrow across the tightrope. And after he walked the wheelbarrow across once, he, 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 uh, he calmed everyone down, he hushed everyone down, and, and, he, and he asked them, do you think I can carry this wheelbarrow across the tightrope? And everyone exclaimed, yes, everyone's clapping and cheering and losing their minds. And yes, yes, we believe you can do it. And then he says to him, okay, get in the wheelbarrow. Who's going to get in? no one got in. That's the kind of faith that we're talking about here. This personal trust, not just simply agreeing that Christ can do it, but trusting him with yourself, knowing that he can do it for you and he will do it for you. It's throwing yourself into Christ's arms and saying, I'm yours. I am all yours. Ray Ortland described faith in this way. He said, faith is to throw oneself down on one's face, to lie down, spread eagle in complete reliance, to make it as graphic as I can, to do a belly flop onto God with all of our sin and all of our failures and all of our fears. We stake everything on the gospel promises of God. If God fails us, we are damned. If God comes through, we are saved forever. Real faith is that blunt and daring and simple. And so Paul ends our text here this morning with saying that if we only believe in this way, if we only trust, if we only have faith, we will be counted righteous. Just like Abraham, here in verse 6, he heard God's promise and he believed God. He personally trusted God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was counted righteous. He was declared to be righteous. He was justified before God. His faith wasn't the basis of it, Christ was, but his faith was the instrument through which he received that justification. And the same is true of us here this morning. Would you trust Christ? Would you believe 
Christ? Would you stake your life on him? Would you go in all in with Christ? Would you do a belly flop onto God with all of your sin and fear and failures? And if you do, he is your righteousness. He is your justification. If you believe him, your sins are forgiven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus. We thank you for our justification in him. And that that forgiveness, that justification is as sure as he is alive. And we know that he's alive. We know that he is seated at your right hand and that our righteousness is ever before you and that our good frame of heart doesn't make our righteousness better. Our bad frame of heart doesn't make our righteousness worse, but our righteousness is Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Would you help us this morning or to have a feeling sense of that?